Fantastic. Amen. Thank you. Have a seat. So good to be with you tonight. Glad you all could be here. And greetings from the great state of Texas in the United States. Yeah, anybody been to Texas before? Raise your hand. No? Okay, a couple of you. You should come. It's wonderful. It's a great place. Uh, there's nothing pretty there. It's all flat and hot. But other than that, it's a great state, you know. Uh, I'm enjoying getting to, to see your beautiful country and, and the town here, and I'm going to spend some more days in the next couple of days looking at the South Island and seeing some of the rest of the country. It's just absolutely beautiful. So, uh, so I know you wake up every day thanking God for the fact that you're in this beautiful place, and, and you look out and you see how green and glorious it is, and you say, Jesus is alive, you know. Amen? All right. Well, uh, I, I want to talk to you tonight about this one thing. This one thing that's really important, if you get this one thing right, I'm convinced that, that God will transform and change your life with just this one thing. Now, sometimes when, when we talk about one thing, we think, oh my goodness, there, there's no way the answer is that simple. But, but in a lot of ways, it really is. Sometimes I think we overcomplicate things, and, and, and we make it more difficult than it needs to be. But, but I really believe that Christ is saying to us that there is one thing, that if we get this one thing correct, uh, it just makes a world of difference. Now, the ministry that I do in, in Arlington, Texas, uh, is a ministry to folks who are dealing with sexual and relational brokenness in their life. Now, that, that comes in lots of different forms. For some of them, it's a transgender reality. For others of them, it's a same-sex attraction. Uh, for still others, it is the parents of those who have children who are out in the far country. Yeah. And, and they're struggling with issues related to gender and identity and who they are and how they are. And if you've been paying attention in the world that we live in today, what you know is that our world is filled with confusion and the devil is delusional in people's lives, causing them to be distracted in a way that makes them believe that things are true that are not true. In fact, so much so that, that we now live in a world where you can simply get up in the morning and choose who you might want to be. So you can be a girl, you can be a boy, uh, you can be bisexual, you can be transgendered, you can be three-spirited, and there's a list of about 54 different kinds of identities that you can pick. And there's, there's identities and genders being added to that list almost on a weekly basis. Now, as a result of that, it makes it very difficult to figure out who we are and how we're supposed to live. And how we believe about ourselves and what we believe about ourselves ultimately determines how we live out our lives. So belief is really, really important. What you believe about yourself really is going to determine the way you live out your life. No one in this room has ever done anything you actually don't believe in. And I would even go so far as to say that your body is never going to go to a place that your heart hasn't already been. All right? Now think about that for a moment. Your body is never going to go to a place that your heart hasn't already been. So if you're one of those people who spend a lot of hours late at night after your spouse has gone to sleep in front of a computer screen, and you're looking at things over and over again, but you're saying to yourself, oh, it's not that big a deal, because I'm really not committing adultery I'm, I'm, I'm really not doing anything that's, that's really wrong. I'm not touching anyone. I'm not, I'm not physically or emotionally entering into a relationship with someone. I, I, I'm really okay. 
I'm telling you that you're not okay at all. Because the only difference between what you're seeing on the screen and the real thing happening is an opportunity. And if that opportunity would present itself, you're more than likely to already go there. Why? Because your heart has already been there. And your body's going to be willing to go there. Now, when you live in this world of confusion and identity uh, misgiving, then, then what ends up happening is, like I said, we're always looking for who we are and how we define ourselves. Now, for a lot of us, we decide that we're going to define ourselves by all sorts of things that we place on ourselves or put on ourselves, whether they be labels or connections or affiliations. And believe it or not, we actually do this quite a bit in the church. You know, we're spirit-filled kind of Christians. We're, we're uh, Baptist kind of Christians, bless their hearts. Um, we're, we're Methodist kind. We're Catholic kind of. We're, we're, um, we're rich people. We're bougie people, you know. And, and, and we put all these labels on us. Some of us put on labels on ourselves related to our family names and our family heritage. I'm a, you know, I'm a Rockefeller if you're in the United States, or I'm a Kennedy or a Clinton or a Trump. Y'all heard about him, eh? Yeah, so does everybody. Um, pray for him. Uh, but, you know, we, we have all these identities that we put on ourselves, and we say because we have these things or these labels, well, that's kind of who we are. And so we go through life with a big checklist, sort of, that we check things off and we say, if I can get enough checks on my box, uh, on my list of boxes of things I'm supposed to do for God and the way God sees me and is supposed to look at me, then, then I can say, wow, look, God, look at my list. Look how good I am. That's my identity. I'm the good boy. I'm the good girl. And there are a lot of us that come to church on a weekly basis that we have lots of checks on our long list of things that we should do for God, and that suddenly becomes the identity that we have. But I'm here to tell you that you can manage your life really well, but miss the Messiah in the process. Okay? A lot of us are missing Jesus because we're managing our sin, but we're not surrendered to our Savior. Okay? We've got to be people who say the most important identity we have is with Him, not with what we do and how we look. Have you ever noticed how, 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 how pretty Christians are these days? We're some pretty people. I mean, we wear cool clothes. We get neat tattoos. We get the latest fashions. We got nice jewelry. I mean, we look good. But are we good? Are we transformed on the inside? Has God grabbed a hold of our heart and made the motivations of our life truly transformational? Or is it just an appearance of goodness? Well, Christ says, no, I, I want your heart. I want you to be transformed. I want you to be changed. One of my, one of my favorite psychologists, Larry Crabb, um, says that oftentimes people try to, to manage their life. And when they do, he said, when people try to, to handle their lives by working harder to do better, they either fail, they fail, and they feel bad about themselves and defeated, or they succeed and they feel prideful. Now, whether you, you come away managing your life and failing and feel like you're another failure, or you succeed and you become prideful, either of those options is a bad option. You see, Jesus knows that it's impossible for you and I to do the things that we need to do to be the kind of people we need to be. And so what he says to us is what you really need to do is surrender. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
You see, Jesus doesn't want you to manage your life. He wants you to embrace the mystery of his Messiah who can transform your life. That's what we need to be doing. So I want to draw your attention to a passage in Scripture in the Gospels in Matthew. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it there or pull it up on your computer. Uh, Matthew, or your phone, uh, Matthew 19. Now, Matthew 19 is an interesting passage. It, it, uh, usually, the, the part we're going to look at, the first part of it talks about teaching on divorce. We're not going to talk about that because that will make too, too many of you mad. So, um, but, but what we are going to talk about is the second part of Matthew 19, which talks about traditionally a story called the rich young ruler. Okay? Now, everybody pretty much, if you've been to church a little while, you might know about the rich young ruler. You may have heard about the rich young ruler. And typically, pastors, uh, appropriately so, talk about it in terms of this being about uh, money and the possession of money and how money can corrupt you and that sort of thing. And then certainly that is true. But, but I want to look at this because as I've been studying and praying and, and thinking about uh, this Matthew 19 passage, the thing that really struck me was not so much the money in the way that we typically talk about it. But I believe that there's a much deeper message about one thing that God is trying to communicate to us in this passage. So let's look at this passage, verse 16. It says, And behold, in chapter 19, behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Well, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Well, he said to him, Which ones? Now, that's an interesting way to, to look at it. All right, what do I need to keep? Well, which ones? Well, if they're commandments, wouldn't you keep them all? But oh, no, that's not the way it works. Why? Because he's just like us. You see, we want to do the bare minimum requirement to get in. We don't want to do any more. We just want to do the minimum thing that we need to get in. We don't want to extra. We just want the minimum. Wow, I don't want to live life minimum. All right. So which ones? And Jesus said, well, here you go. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, the young man said to him, well, all these things I've kept, what one thing do I lack? Jesus said to him, well, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Hmm. One thing. One thing. It starts off saying that um, he comes to Jesus and he says, Master, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? You see, this young man, his whole premise, his whole idea, his whole mentality was, I myself can do something that's going to allow me to be so good that Jesus is going to let me in. When we live in the world that we live in today, we often see people who are identified in ways that believe that they are in control of their lives and can do something that is going to make their life more acceptable, not only to themselves, but everyone else. Now, let me show you just a few pictures. I think we have them. Um, do we have some pictures? Is that right? We do? Okay. Uh, I want to show you some pictures of some people who kind of have taken this to sort of an extreme extent. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that some of these pictures are going to be a little bit disturbing, so I'm just warning you, okay, uh, get ready for it. Uh, this first picture is a 57, 58-year-old man who decided that he really wasn't a man, but he was actually a six-year-old girl, okay? 
So he left his wife and his seven children, deserted them, and became a six-year-old girl. Now, most people could look at him and see that he's not a six-year-old girl. However, he's decided that he's going to live as a six-year-old girl, and he found two older parents, two older a couple, who said to him, well, we'll, we'll treat you like a six-year-old girl, and we'll let you be our adopted daughter. And you can come play with our granddaughter, and y'all can have fun out in the yard, and you can just be a little girl. And the man, as he was being interviewed and talked to, he said, you know, for the first time in my life, I feel as though I've been allowed to be who it was that I was always created to be. So he's redefining all of his reality. Now, when you looked at some of the posts about this man that followed his coming out, so to speak, you have all these people saying how, how incredible he was, how amazing he is, how brave he is, all of these things about him. But you never notice any mention of the fact that there is a wife somewhere and seven children who he walked away from and deserted in order to embrace what he calls his true self. So what happens to the self of all the folks he left behind? What responsibility as a man does he have to the commitments that he made and the vows that he took to be in a married relationship and to be a father to those children? But when you decide to define your own reality, when you decide to manage your life, when you decide that you become the arbiter of all that is true instead of God, then you can choose to be a six-year-old girl if you're a 58-year-old man. Next picture. Now, this person decided that not only were they originally born a male, but he was also gay, and he decided that he really didn't want to be a male, that he was really a man, he was really a woman trapped in a man's body. So he transitioned from a gay man into a female. And then after he transitioned into a female, he decided that he really wasn't a female, but he was actually a female dragon. And so as a result of that, you'll notice he's chopped off his ears, surgically removed his ears. He's cut his nose and had it pinned down. He split his tongue in two, so he has a forked tongue like a reptile. He's modified his teeth. You can't really see that. He's injected the saclera of his eyes, which is the white part of his eyes, with green. That's permanent green. Okay? He's tattooed his entire body. He's implanted these little things into his skull so that he has these horns all down his back. And he's tattooed his entire body with scales to look like a reptile. Now, again, this man claims to be the most body-modified transgender person in the world. I don't know if that's true or not, but it very well could be. And and as I look at him, her, uh, it's very disturbing to me that he has decided to define his reality not by actually what is real, but what he has imagined. And if you listen to his story, it's quite fascinating. He was a gay man who was into some pretty... uh, out there sort of activity that I won't even tell you about. But um, in the process of all that, he was drunk one night at a, at a bar, met a woman, um, had a relationship that night with that woman, uh, impregnated this woman, but he didn't know that. And then the woman gave birth to a child that he discovered much later. When he discovered that he had a son, he wanted to have a relationship with that son. And so he began uh, to have a relationship with the boy uh, only to discover later on that he was really the man, was really wanting to be a girl. So he went to his son and he said, well, son, I'm going to transition and become a woman. The little boy said, well, you know, dad, that's not really cool with me. He said, I already have a mom. I don't need another mom. I thought, wow, from the mouths of babes, you know. 
But he said, no, he said, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do. And so the little boy said, well, if that's what you're going to do, then I don't want to have a relationship with you anymore because I don't need another mom, I need a dad. Now, as the man shared his story, he said that one of the things, the thing that he and this little boy would often do is his little son was fascinated with lizards and dragons. And And he lived in Las Vegas. And so he would go out in the desert and they would go look for dragons and little lizards out in the desert. And then all of a sudden, this guy decides and later in his life that he's going to become a dragon. Do you see any connections between his need to be accepted by his son and his desire to turn into something that he obviously can't be? And by the way, in case y'all don't know, dragons really aren't real things. Do y'all know that? So not only has he done the male to female thing, which actually physically, physiologically cannot happen, he has now gone beyond that to say, well, I want to do the imaginary thing and become a dragon. Why? Because he's defining himself by himself, and he has become his own God. Okay? Next picture. Now, this is a woman who has a husband, and her husband believes he's a dog. And so he lives as a dog with his wife. Um, She treats him like a dog. She, you know, deals with him like a dog. All because that's the identity he decides that that's his true inner self. Now, I know sometimes when I show you these things, you're all looking at them and go, wow, this is really silly. That's really extreme. But I want you to know that if you can decide that you can be born something and change what it is that you're born into something else, there's really not a limit as to what you can become. You see, because when there is no absolute outside of you that defines who you are and you become the absolute that defines who you are, then suddenly you can be whatever you decide to be. You see, ultimately the problem that our world is having right now, it's, 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 not, a, it's not a homosexual problem. It's not a transgender problem. It's not an identity confusion problem. It's a God problem where we have decided that God is no longer God and I am God. And when I am God, I get to decide who I am because I can create me in my own image, whatever that image might be. Oh, my goodness. I don't know about you, but we're not very good at being God. And then this last picture. This last picture is a guy by the name of Nick V. You may know Nick V. He's from Australia, right? Pretty close. I believe it's Australia he's from. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd hate for him to be a Kiwi and me not claim it for you, but, um, you know, but, but he's from Australia and Nick was born with no arms and no legs. Now you look at that situation, that's the reality for him. Okay. He was really born with no arms and no legs. And so you would think to yourself, man, if I was born with no arms and no legs, I'd be pretty depressed. I mean, it's a terrible situation to be in, right? And he would probably tell you, yes, it was in the beginning. It was very hard for him. In fact, as he began to grow up, he thought, my goodness, what am I going to do? How am I going to live this out? And he talks about how at one point when he became interested in a woman and the woman was interested in him, he thought to himself, God, how in the world can I ever be a husband to a wife? I can't even hold her hand. And he said, as he began to think about that and pray about that and be very depressed about that, The Lord spoke softly and tenderly to him and said, Nick, you don't have to hold her hand because you can capture her heart. Nick later decided to go ahead and get married to that woman. He loves that woman. Today they have four beautiful children. I don't know if I had another picture of it or not. I may not have. But um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, he's married to this beautiful woman who's completely normal, uh, has arms and legs. and, uh, And yet they have these beautiful four children that they've had together. You see, Nick decided that he was going to take the reality of God's created intention and know that if God allowed it in his life, God also planned to redeem it in his life. 
And God was going to use whatever it was for his glory and honor. You see, rather than trying to recreate himself into something that he never was intended to be, Nick said, if this is what God's creation is, I want to use it for the glory of God and the honor of God. And so Nick was transformed by the power of God. Now he's all over the world sharing the gospel, saying, you think your life is bad? Try having no arms and no legs. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Jesus looked at this rich young ruler, and he says, oh, you think you want to be good? You think you're going to be good enough to enter the kingdom of God? He said, no, that's not the way it works. And then Jesus sets him up. Jesus sets up this guy. I love Jesus. I love the way he's a genius at communication. You see, Jesus knows exactly what to say, when to say it, and how to say it to get you in a situation that you can't get out of. Do you ever know Jesus always asks you questions that he already knows the answers for? If Jesus asks you a question, you might as well tell the truth because he already knows the answer. All right? So don't try to, you know, lie to Jesus. He already knows what's going on. If he's asking you a question, it's only to help you understand your problem. It's not to help him understand you. Okay? So he asked this man, he says to him, um, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And then he said to him, well, which ones? Like I said, he wants to do the minimum. That's the rich young ruler. I want to do the minimum, Jesus. And Jesus said, and look at that list. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you notice something about that list? It's the last six commandments of the ten. All of those commandments have to do with the horizontal relationship of other people. You see, the rich young ruler was great at performance. He was great at making these sort of horizontal connections with other people. He was real good at making sure that people saw that he was a nice guy. He was a good guy. He was kind. He was generous. He was all the things that from an appearance standpoint, people would go, ooh, I like him. He's a good man. Look at that man. He's excellent. Ooh, he loves, he loves the Lord. That's awesome. And everybody applauded. And he's like, yeah, I'm pretty good. That's why I'm coming to Jesus, telling him, what else do I need to do? I got this thing whooped. And Jesus says, okay, well, that's interesting. And the rich young man said, well, Tell me, Lord, all these things I've kept. I mean, he's pretty excited. He's pretty puffed up. He's pretty arrogant about it. Why? Because the tendency of humanity is to compare our performance against the performance of someone else that we know isn't performing as well as us to make us look better. We love comparison. We love looking at other people and saying, well, you know, I went to church on Sunday night. They don't ever go to church on Sunday night. You know I'm going to heaven. I mean, I always believe people come on Sunday night really are going to heaven. I don't know about everybody else, but like this, this is the real Christian people that are here tonight. You know, I don't know about the folks on Sunday morning. They are, you know, they may be posing, but you guys came on Sunday night. I mean, it's a big deal, right? I mean, he looked that way at everybody else and he kept saying, yeah, I'll tell you what, all these folks, they're, they're not nearly as, look at what I'm doing. Look how good I am. How many times have you and I said to the Lord, hey, look at me, Lord. I mean, I made that sacrifice. I fasted those three days, pastor. Oh, I fasted fasted those three days and the next three days plus one more. I'm going to heaven. I'm first in line, right? You see, that's what we end up doing. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with fasting. Please do it. I totally believe in it. It's one of those practices and disciplines we don't do nearly enough in the church. And we need to learn that your body doesn't control you. Okay? When you submit to the Lord and you begin to fast, you start hearing all those hunger pains and you start saying to those pains, you know what? Body, you don't get to make decisions. I do. 
And when you get to do that, you start learning about the discipline of, of God and how oftentimes you feel those urges in your body, those feelings, if you will, and those feelings don't define you. And let me tell you something about feelings, y'all. All these folks that are saying, well, I feel this way. Let me tell you what feelings are. Feelings are wonderful, but feelings only tell you about how you are at any given moment. They never tell you who you are. Wait, I'm going to say that one more time because I don't think y'all got it. All right? Feelings only tell you about how you are at a given moment. They do not tell you who you are. So if you're defining your life by how you feel, what happens when things change? Just for instance, what happens? Do y'all have lottery here? Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Um, but, but let's say you played a lottery and you all of a sudden won $250 million. You realize you got the winning ticket. You went down there. They took pictures of you. Everything's fantastic. $250 million is yours. Your pastor's calling you saying, don't forget Jesus. You're going to bless the Lord. The devil's had that money long enough. Praise God. All right, so make a generous donation. But no. Um, but you just won $250 million. You're so excited. So you're all excited. You're going to go home and tell your family. You're driving home, and you're excited. You get close to your house, and all of a sudden you see, like, the police tape that's kind of all around the block where you are, and you're thinking, wow, they already know that I won. They're there to protect me from $250 million. People are going to come and try to rob me. And you're all excited. You get closer. You go to your house, and you see the police there. Lights are on, and you're thinking, wow, this is a pretty big deal. They must have really stuff going on. You enter the house, and as soon as you enter the house, a policeman walks up to you and says, sir, can I, tell you, can I, can I have a moment with you here? And you're like, sure, yeah, what's going on? You're just here to protect me? He's like, well, actually, no, sir. But, but what happened was while you were gone, somebody came into your house and, and they killed all of your family. Like they have murdered everyone in your family. There's nobody left. He said, we're, we're, we're looking for the guy. We have a description of him, but, but we haven't caught him yet. Well, all of a sudden, your euphoria and your happiness and your joy because you won $250 million is completely gone because in a split second, you realize that the thing that was most important to you, the people who were closest to you, the love relationships that you had with people who raised you are suddenly gone, and you would give up that $250 million in a heartbeat if you can get those people back. You see, if your life and your identity is dependent on your feelings, it will change in a moment by the circumstances around you. But if your life and your identity is fixed in who Jesus is, it doesn't matter what storm comes against you because I'm still the son of God when I've got 250 million or I've got a family that's all dead. That doesn't change. And so the rich young ruler says to Jesus, he says, well, if you want, um, he, said, I, he said, I've done all these things since I was little, but what one thing do I lack? And this is where he gets totally set up. And Jesus says to him, well, I'll tell you what you actually lack. And what he's missing here, what Jesus left out of the commands were the first four commands. The first four commands all have to do with a vertical relationship between God and man. You know, It's those commands that talk about that you'll not have any other gods, that you'll not make any graven images, that you'll not take the Lord's name in vain, that you'll keep the Sabbath holy. It's all about the lordship of God in our lives. And, and what the rich young ruler did not have and what he would not succumb to was lordship in his life. He wanted to be his own God. He was defining his own reality. He says, well, all these things I've kept, what one thing do I lack? And Jesus, being Jesus, when you ask Jesus one thing, he gives you more than one. Because you're not in control. He is. Okay? So when you just say, oh, just tell me one thing, Jesus says, well, I'm going to tell you. Here, here's the one thing, but it has two parts. Part A, everything you have, go and give it to the poor. Part B, come follow me. 
Now, what's fascinating about that command, y'all, is that, again, we always think, oh, it's all about the money. It's all about the money. But I'm here to tell you, it's not about the money. You see, what Jesus saw in the man that the, Jesus, that the man could not see in himself is that the entire identity of the man was defined by the possessions that he held. His identity was the rich, young ruler. You see, his, his identity was wrapped up in these things he could hold on to, things that he could measure, things that he could look at, things that he could feel. And Jesus says, if you really want to know how to become a part of the kingdom of God, let go of all of that. Open your hands and let it all fall to the floor. And he said, and when you have let go of all the things that you think define you, he said, then you're able to come and come after me, the only thing that actually gives you identity and meaning. He said, you come then and follow me. You know what the problem is in our world today? You know what the problem is with all the folks that I counsel with and deal with who are struggling with their identities? It's not their sexual inclination. It's not their increased libido. It's not their innate, naturally born, immutable desires. Those things aren't immutable. Desires aren't immutable. Uh, Everything can change in our life just about. And so the reality is, it's not those things which are the problem. The problem with all of this is that we have our hands on something that we think we can define, and we're refusing to surrender to the lordship of Jesus in our lives. God has not called you to be a God. God has called you to be a follower. Followers don't give directions to the one who's leading. Followers follow. Matter of fact, my idea of a vacation, I used to tell people all the time, my idea of a vacation, when my wife and I go on vacation, my my idea of a vacation is I make, I book the flight, I book the hotel, we together pick the place we're going to go to, and after that I make no more decisions. I show up on the vacation, and I wake up every day, and I said, sweet honey that I love, beautiful as you are, where are we going today? And she says, baby, here's what we're going to do. And she gives me the, the itinerary for the day, and we follow that itinerary, and it's phenomenal. It's awesome. She does research for hours and days and days. I mean, she, she, she loves that guy, and she makes all the plans, and I just wake up. And you know why it's so good? Because she loves me. She knows me. She loves me. She cares about me. She, she's all about me and her, and we have the same interests and all that. So, so when she picks all the things for me to do, I know that I'm going to have a great time. Well, how much more does your heavenly Father who reached down into the earth, picked up the dust from the ground and breathed into that dust the breath of life that you became a living So How much more does your Father in heaven know what you need and is going to lead you in the right way? Oh, my goodness. Folks, I'm here to tell you, if my wife can make good decisions about a vacation, our God can make good decisions about our life and our identity. We've got to surrender to that reality. He says, listen, this is what you need to do. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. Follow me, the two hardest words in the scripture. Oh my goodness, follow me. Follow me. Two words, you need to just say it all the time. Follow me, follow me, I need to follow me. Not follow me, but follow him. Follow Jesus. Follow me. And where did Jesus go? Oh, we got smart people in your church, Pastor. You see, Jesus went to the cross. Oh, my goodness. Wait a minute. You're telling me that if I'm going to let go of all my riches and I'm going to give it to the poor and I'm going to surrender everything and I'm going to come after you, Jesus, that where I'm going is to the cross? Oh, yeah. You know why? Because 
Mark 8, 32 says, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. You see, what Jesus really says in that passage is you need to come die. You need to come die some more. And when you think you're really dead, then I want you to die one more time. And I, says, I, think, I think he says it to us three different times because he knows it takes about that long for us to get it. So when you die and you die and you die some more, then he says you will live. Because it's only when the seed falls into the ground and truly dies that it brings forth much fruit. You see, you have no idea what the potential is that you have until you completely surrender to Christ and he empowers you to do what it is that he's already called you to do. What things are you clinging to that's defining you? Is it your popularity? Is it your pretty looks? For some of you men in here, some of you ladies in here, what about your very well-toned body? Now, for some of you, that's, not a, that's a hope and a prayer, I realize. But, you know, I understand that. I'm with you on that one, you know. I keep praying over this, but God hadn't transformed it quite in the way I wanted to. But, yeah, for some of you, that's it. You know, for some of you, it's, it's the security of your job. For some of you, it's your intellect. You just think you're smart. And maybe you really are smart. But you know what? Whatever smarts you have, you're smart because of Jesus. Amen. And you need to be using those smarts for the kingdom of God. If you're not using those smarts for the kingdom of God, you're just doing what the rich young ruler did, trying to identify something that isn't really of God, but you're trying to make people impressed with you. What are you holding on to this evening that's defining you? Is it your family name? Is it the church affiliation? Is it you wearing the right T-shirt when you came to church tonight or getting a new pair of socks so everybody can see where you go to church and make you look better? I like socks, Pastor, but I'm just saying. Okay, man, it's a cool idea. I'm going to have to get me some before I leave. I mean, you know. All right. But, but it's just, you know, what is it that you're holding on to? Whatever it is that you're holding on to, I'm telling you that Jesus says let it go. Some of you are here tonight and you're struggling with some of the issues that I've talked about. You're struggling with this identity thing. You're struggling with your attractions. You're struggling with who you think you are in your gender reality. Some of you are struggling with the fact that you have past abuse in your life, and your past abuse is defining your future. And you've got to let it go. Jesus said, you know what? I saw it. I was there. I cried over it. I wept over it. Matter of fact, I cared so much about it that I went to the cross and took on the stripes in order that you would be freed from it. And yes, if he allowed it, and obviously he did, he plans to redeem it. And so how is he going to redeem that in, in your life? Some of you are holding on to your sexual past. Some of you are promiscuous as heterosexual men and women. You've slept with a lot of people you shouldn't have slept with. Your heart is fragmented because it's connected to all different kinds of people. You've got to let go of that in order to move forward. You've got to repent. You've got to ask for the soul ties to be broken off in the name of Jesus. And you've got to ask for the Lord to give you a passion for a person that you can be committed to for the rest of your life. You've got to let that go. You've got to leave that behind. For some of you, it's being the good boy or the good girl always performing the right. For some of you, it's just being a victim. Things happen to you. Maybe you were abused in your past. But you can't let it go. You keep rehearsing it over and over and over in your head. You keep saying, well, you don't understand. You don't understand because this happened to me when I was a kid. And you're thinking, well, that's going to just determine how everything else happens in your life. Well, I'm just here to tell you that though I totally understand the incredible pain that those things cause and how difficult it is to walk away from that, I'm here to tell you that your past, according to Jesus, does not define your present and should not determine your future. Okay? You've got to get 
through it and past it. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new reality. You're going to put on life. And I want to give you life that's abundant. So you've got to get past it. It's hard to do those things. It's never easy. You see, so many of us want to paint our own masterpiece. We want to become like that lizard guy that I put up there. We want to create our own masterpiece. And I'm convinced that every single person that Jesus creates is created in the image of God. You are a masterpiece of the master. The only problem with our masterpiece is our masterpiece is marred. It's marred by the sin of this world. There's chips and there's tears in the canvas and there's things that are not quite as they should be. There, there's some spots that's been exposed to the sunlight or the darkness too long and it's faded or it's cracked or it's not like it should be. And what we do is we go buy the cheapest paint that we can and we start trying to repaint the canvas of the masterpiece. Well, just think if I had the Mona Lisa up here or a big Monet picture up here, and it wasn't quite like it should be, and it had a little spots in it here and there that wasn't quite right, and I decided to just go get me some cheap paint, and I started painting over the masterpiece. Oh, it may look okay for a little while, but the reality is it's not as beautiful as what God created. You and I need to stop painting on the masterpiece and realize that we have a master who wants to restore the masterpiece. You see, all these people who keep saying, wow, look at me, look at my masterpiece, look what I've created they, they, they keep saying that stuff as though they have the ability to create something greater than the master has made. But they don't. We are marred masterpieces that can only be restored by the Father. We've got to realize that. We've got to embrace that. I don't want you to be what everybody says they want to be, which is, oh, I want to be my true self. I want to be my real self. Well, I don't know about you, but what the Bible tells me about your true self and your real self is that it is wicked. That it was brought forth in sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, if, if, if we had a little video screen on your forehead that showed us the darkest thoughts of your mind as you're sitting here in church tonight, some of you would be getting up and moving because you wouldn't want to be sitting next to the person you're sitting next to. Why? Because we're wicked. Our heart is deceitful. We are people who are inclined towards sin. So I don't want you to embrace your true self. Because the true self that you think you are is painting on the masterpiece. What I want you to embrace is your redeemed self, your restored self. I want you to embrace the masterpiece that is there when the master comes and patches the places that are broken so that he restores you to the way that he wanted you to be, the intention he has from creation He is in the process of doing that. It's called the big word, sanctification. And he's going to do that completely when he returns again. And he says, guess what? You're going to look exactly like I wanted you to be. You're going to be created exactly like I wanted you to be created. You're going to be completely redeemed. So please reject your true self and embrace your redeemed self. That's what God wants for you. Oh, my goodness. The saddest, one of the saddest verses in the Bible is verse 22. He says, when the young man heard this, what was this? All those things I just talked about when he heard this one thing that Jesus wanted him to do. He said, when the young man heard this one thing, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Oh, my soul. You see, the problem that the rich young ruler had is he had a lot of things that he owned and possessed. He had a lot of things that he lived with. He had a lot of possessions, but he didn't have anything to live for. Jesus wants to give you something to live for. He wants to transform your life and give you something to live for. The Bible says he went away sorrowful. 
Why did he go away sorrowful? Because he wouldn't allow the transformation to take place in his life that Jesus offered him. You see, when you meet Jesus, anybody, anytime when they meet Jesus, they're going to be transformed. The question is, what's the transformation going to look like? Are you going to turn away from him as the rich young ruler did and say, I don't want you. Get behind me. You're not what I'm looking for. Or are you going to be transformed by embracing the reality of what Christ says and say, Lord, do in me whatever you will. Your will be done, not mine. Oh, that's the prayer that you and I have to to make. We've got to be willing to allow that shame of our sin and the past and the focus that we have on ourselves rather than others and on God. We have to let all of that go so we can be the redeemed self that Christ has called us to be. Can you do that? Can you do that? Philippians 3, 13 through 15 says, Forgetting what is behind, I press on toward the goal of the high calling in Christ Jesus. He said, let those who are mature think this way. It's time for us to grow up in the church. we got to grow up and realize that we are not the definers of our reality. God is. We can't identify with the things that we feel. We've got to identify with the Savior that has gone to the cross, feeling our sin and pain so that we might be redeemed. It reminds me of a young man that I knew. Uh, he had teenage parents, and, and it was difficult uh, for this young couple as they first got married. But they had this little boy, and the little boy was a good little kid. Uh, Dad shipped off and went to work. He was gone most of the time. Uh, Mom was there with the little boy. He had, she had two uh, sisters, but they were both unmarried. The little boy also had two grandmothers, but they were both unmarried at the time. And so the little boy grew up in his house with, with these women. And so... Um, he talks about how as a little kid he, he did well and people liked him and he thought everything was great. He went on through grammar school, grade school, and got into middle school and did well and became student council president in his middle school. And then he got into high school and he was pretty popular in school and did really, really well in his school, um, became an honor roll student. And by the time he graduated, he'd become student council president again of his high school. And, and all the teachers liked him, and the students liked him, and things got along well. And from the outside, every performance seemed to be really great. Matter of fact, it was so good that the teachers came to him at the end of his graduating year and said, you know what, you're graduating near the top of your class. How about you give the commencement address at graduation? He said, sure, I'd be glad to do that. So he got up that night at graduation. He stood behind the, the platform. He gave a rousing uh, graduation address. Everybody clapped, and all the mamas applauded, and they all kind of nudged their husbands and said, now there's a man that's going somewhere. You need to get our daughter to know him. <laughs> Everything from the outside looked just great, but stuff on the inside wasn't so great for this little boy. You see, internally, there were things that people didn't know about that was happening in his life. You see, when that little boy, even though he didn't grow up in a religious uh, a Christian home, he had some religion in his life, and he knew about God. But he didn't uh, know that God could transform or change anybody. And when he was five or six years old, um, a grandfather came into his life. One of his grandmothers married for the third time. And when she married, this granddad that came into his life began to really focus on that little boy and love on that little boy. And the little boy ate it up, thought it was the greatest thing ever. His granddad did all kinds of cool things with him. They hunted, they fished, they did all these things together. And he thought, wow, this is great to have a granddad. But what they didn't know about this granddad was that he, he was also a pedophile. And he began to molest that little boy at really, really young age in his life. Now, the mom and dad were super careful about not leaving their children with sitters, and so they would never have somebody come over, but every week they would deliver their children over to grandma and grandpa's house. And so sure enough, every week this man would have access to this little boy, and he began to molest this little boy on a regular basis, so much so that the little boy just thought, well, that must be what you do with your grandfather. 
By the time he got to puberty stage, he actually would initiate things with his grandfather from time to time because it just felt good and he felt loved and cared for and, and it was intimate. And he thought, well, this must be what you do. But now as he's graduating from high school, he suddenly realizes that he also has some strange attractions to some of his friends in high school. And now he knows that what these attractions are is called gay, homosexual. And he thinks to himself, well, I could, I, I could embrace that because he said he had people in his family that were homosexual and, and were celebrated and loved and appreciated, so they wouldn't have rejected him had he done it. But he said there was something in his heart that he just knew wasn't right about that, and he just didn't want to be gay. So, so he did what little religion he had, and he said, well, okay, if I don't want this and it's not supposed to be right, then maybe if I just pray hard enough, the gay will go away. And so he prayed and prayed and prayed that the gay would go away, and guess what? The gay didn't go away. So he thought, well, you know what? If the gay won't go away, maybe I need to go away. So he got up early one morning and went into his mom's medicine cabinet. He grabbed all the medicine he could find, put it in a big styrofoam cup, took all the medicine, drank a lot of water, went back into his room, shut the door, locked the door, and hoped he would never wake up. Late that night, his mother, realizing what had happened, came and found him. They brought him to the doctor. They pumped his stomach out. They did all that, and he lived, thank goodness. But about two weeks later, he was depressed yet again, only this time it was worse because he thought, wow, I'm such a failure, I can't even kill myself well. Maybe I need to do this better. And so this time he went into his dad's room, went into the gun cabinet where his dad kept all the guns. He grabbed a pistol that he had used many times before. He grabbed that pistol, went back to his room, shut the door in the dark night, got down on the side of the bed and put that pistol in his mouth. And just about the time he was about to pull the trigger, he remembered that he had only been to church a couple of times with a friend of his an evangelical friend that he had that was a piano player and was going to do a recital. And he said, hey, I'd like you to come sing at this recital. Will you, come, will you come sing? And he's like, well, yeah, I'll come sing for you. And he's like, well, you know, I want you to practice. But in order for us to practice, we have to go to church first and then we practice after. You know how you evangelicals are. Y'all are sneaky. <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. Keep it up. And so sure enough, he went to church. And when he went to church, the preacher was preaching about this man, Jesus. And about this crazy cross and how, how, how the Jesus died on the cross and gave his life for sinners. And if you would trust in him and believe in him, that, that he would take on your guilt and your shame and he would transform your life. And when the boy heard that, he thought, that's ridiculous. How can a man thousands of years ago do anything in my life today? And how do they know that's true? They believed this ancient book that was written by all these different people thousands of years ago. Boy, these people, they are weak-minded. How dumb. So he totally discounted everything he heard. However, that night with that steel in his mouth, he thought, you know, I've tried everything else. My friend's family really is different than my family. Maybe what they have is true. He pulled that gun out of his mouth, and he said out loud into that dark room, God, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if you're true. I don't know if you can do what they say you can do, but if you can, you better do it right now, because if you don't, I'm going to pull this trigger and paint that wall red. And in that moment, Jesus showed up in that room with that little boy. Now, when Jesus showed up, it wasn't a physical manifestation, but he just felt the warmth of Jesus' presence all over his body. And, and he stood up that night. He still had a dysfunctional family and a grandfather who would continue to try to do things with him. He had all kinds of problems in his life. But when he stood up there that night, he had two things that he knew was true. He had a message from God that said, I will never leave you or forsake you, and I will be a father to the fatherless. Now, he didn't know those things were Scripture, but he found out later that they were. And I know that that is a true story because that's my story. And I never dreamed in a million years that God would have me sharing my story to other people, telling them that God can transform the sinner's heart. 
that God can take the identity that you feel and believe and he can transform it into something different. I never believed that 30 years ago I would be walking down the aisle of a church. Yes, praise Jesus. I never dreamed that 30 years ago I would be walking down, standing at the front of the aisle, uh, standing at the front of the church, uh, at, at an aisle of a church, when this beautiful five foot eleven, red-haired, green-eyed woman would walk down the aisle and say, I want to marry this man and be his beloved wife for the rest of his life. I, I never believed that that could happen, y'all. They all said it couldn't happen, and they said it wouldn't last. 30 years ago, they said it wouldn't last. And I never believed that in April of this year, just a few months ago, I would be standing at the side of my wife's bed as she had been battling cancer for the last seven years when she would finally take her last breath and go be with Jesus. And I'd raise my hands rejoicing, knowing that she was going to be with Jesus. And I would be able to say in that moment the very thing that the Lord had reminded me on the side of that bed, that, Ricky, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I will be a father to the fatherless. I'm here tonight to tell you, folks, that God has an identity that he wishes to inscribe upon the hearts and lives of each of you. It is not the identity of your feeling. It is not the identity of your passion. It is not the identity of the world. It is the identity of the one who stretched out his arms and said to you, if you will come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. If you will come to me and trust in me, I will transform your sinful heart and give you a new heart. If you will come to me, I will forgive your sin no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how life-dominating it is, and you will be a fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 6, 11 that says, and such were some of you, but you have been transformed. You have been justified and sanctified and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I stand here today as a testimony to you to tell you that I'm no special person, but I have a special God who says that the problem you have is not that your sin is too big, but that your Savior is too small. And Jesus wants to come tonight, and he wants to give you freedom. And he wants to give you a new identity. Will you let Jesus, will you let Jesus define who you are? Will you be the one who says, Lord, I will give everything open-handed to you and I will follow you. Because if not, you will be a fulfillment of that verse 22. And he turned and walked away and he was sorrowful for he was a man or a woman who defined himself by himself. God, help us and give us strength. Pastor.